Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, July 17th, and we are talking about an e-commerce IPO. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's supreme sultan of shoddy substandardness, Brian Faroldi. Ah, the alliteration, it always gets me, Brian. I thought I was going to trip up over that one. You did great, Dylan. If one of the the ad reads were that good. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Oh, boy. You know, I think our producers are probably happy that we don't have any third-party ads anymore because there's a lot of extra editing for them uh, (laughs) back when we did. Um, I'm almost surprised, Brian, that you didn't work Shopify into that S alliterative intro because Mm. today on the show, we are going to be talking about an upcoming IPO uh, that is very much in the Shopify realm of of the market. Yes. Uh, Big commerce uh, is is coming public. This is one of Shopify's primary competitors. They have a business model that is very similar to them, although there are some differences between the two. But it's very clear that big commerce has seen what's happened to Shopify's stock price this year, takes a look at that valuation, and they say, hey, I want a piece of that. So it makes complete (laughs) sense for the company to be pushing this forward now. Yeah, I I think that that's a really interesting point because a lot of folks have put IPO plans or direct listing plans, what have you, on hold with the market uncertainty. You know, typically companies like to go public when people are feeling really good about the market. They know there's going to be quote unquote support, you know, for the stock and for the issuance and that they are not going to wind up with a, a broken IPO. And we talk all the time about the different incentives with IPOs, but people generally like to see their stock price go up a little bit after they go public. It would be easy to think that now is not a great time for, for a company to go public with everything that's going on. But a quick look at what's going on with the Shopify stock. I think people over at Big Commerce are probably licking their chops, hoping to get their stock publicly listed. <laughs> and how could they not be? Shopify has been one of the biggest winners, really, of the last five years, up many, many times uh, in value. It's been growing at an exceptionally high rate. So it makes complete sense for Big Commerce to get a great value, get, get a generous valuation when they come public. And we don't know what it's going to be yet because we just have the initial S1. So we, we do not, are not working with complete information. Uh, but I always enjoy digging into information when it comes out about, about exciting companies such as big commerce. Yeah, we get to do the first take, right? This is uh, this is green space. We haven't uh, we haven't talked about this business yet. I don't know if I've heard too many fools talking about it yet. So it'll be fun to dive in. I always love doing these S1 shows. Um, People probably aren't going to be surprised by this with the the Shopify comparison. This company works as a software, as a service platform in the e-commerce space. It's probably going to be a very familiar model for anyone who happens to own Shopify or follow that business. Yes, exactly. So they operate an online platform that makes it easy for businesses to create online stores. So they help with everything from uh, website creation itself, getting the, the back office uh, up and running, and they also offer offer direct integrations with uh, marketplaces like uh, Amazon and eBay. You can quickly get your post uh, your your products out there on 
social networks like Facebook and Instagram. You can They have integrations with search engines like Google uh, and Bing. And they also offer online and offline connections to point of sale systems such as like uh, Square or, or Clover. So it's a, it's a very robust and built out platform. And if you did not have an online presence, uh, this seems like a great choice to go to and have one established very quickly. Yeah, at core, they're trying to make it easy for people to get their footprint online and build out all the functionality that they want. Generally going to be more commerce oriented with what they're trying to do, but could not think of a more relevant business right now. Yes, exactly. And so they, and as we said, we can help with everything from like store design to the hosting. They also help handle the payments um, and, and the reporting. And the amazing thing is this business was really a hyper growth company right from the start. So it was actually founded in 2009 in Australia. Within a year of their founding, they had 10,000 customers. One year after they were founded, 10,000 customers. That's just amazing uh, growth. Now, they did move from Australia to the United States uh, in 2011, and they've na- already nabbed some pretty investment, uh, big investments from some famous VC firms, the most famous of which is SoftBank. Um, and the company's gone over some transition in the last couple of years. In 2015, uh, the original founders did move on, and a new CEO named Brent Bellum uh, was brought in. He came from HomeAway. Uh, he also worked at uh, PayPal and eBay uh, previously, and he joined the company. And at the time, big commerce was solely focused on small businesses. Uh, but Bellum shifted the company's focus towards uh, the mid-market, which they define as a company with $1 million to $50 million in revenue, as well as enterprise-grade enterprise, uh, customers, which uh, is a company that they define as more than $50 million in annual revenue. And they've done a nice job in just the last couple of years. They've signed up several big customers that include Ben & Jerry's, SC Johnson, Sony, Toyota. And uh, today they have 60,000 uh, online stores in 120 uh, countries. Now that's pretty impressive, but comparisons are always helpful, Dylan. And Shopify has a million customers uh, worldwide. So Hats off to big commerce. They've, they've grown a lot, but they're still much, much smaller than Shopify. I think with both of those businesses, it's so fascinating because you assume a company like Ben & Jerry's or Sony you know, has their own in-house e-commerce platform. They're big enough for sure, right? That they would be building out their own site and their own functionality. And yet, they have these software as a service players under the hood making them go. And the more you dig into these businesses, the more and more you realize how wide their reach is and how many pretty big companies are relying on them. These aren't mom and pop shops necessarily that are that are uh, using them to sell trinkets like they would on Etsy. There are a lot of pretty big bona fide businesses using both of these. Shopify just happens to have a couple more merchants and, and probably some higher profile names. Yeah, but... Big companies want things to be easy as well, right? So that speaks volumes about how useful these platforms are if they can attract big names like that to come to them versus uh, going out and spending the money on their own. It does show you that there really is something uh, to this business model. The, the, the best thing about getting the S1, Brian, is we go from thinking we know what's going on with the company to actually getting a sense of the financials and starting to dig into some of the numbers. You queued up the business model. Why don't we talk about the financials here? Uh, well, so the company's business model, as we said, is very similar to Shopify. It's a software as a service uh, model. And they generate revenue in two primary ways. Uh, the first way is through subscription sales, and that's 71% of the total. 
and that includes platform subscription fees, uh, professional fees, sales of SSL uh, certificates, and you can get started on their platform for basically uh, $30 a month. That's just a very attractive price point for small businesses. Um, and that business is growing okay, 17% growth uh, last year. Uh, the faster growing part of their business is what they call their partner and service revenue. So this is um, revenue sharing arrangements that they have uh, with some of their partners. So if you join Big Commerce's platform and you want to add in a customer relationship management product, for example, you can do that right through um, Big Commerce's platform with just a couple of clicks. And those products are actually handled by partners, and Big Commerce just takes a commission and does a revenue sharing agreement uh, for, for getting that customer set up. And they have 600 of these pre-built applications. I like that. I like that their model is we're not going to compete with these other big names. We're actually going to partner with them. Uh, so that, that's a strategy that um, I certainly enjoy. And that part of the business, so the partner and service revenue, is growing, 20, is growing 38% uh, last year. So it's the smaller part of the business for now, but it's growing faster. Of course, all these numbers were pre-COVID. <laughs> and as you can imagine, uh, just like we saw with Shopify, we saw some acceleration because of COVID. Yeah. Is, is the um, partner and service revenue, is it best to think of that as almost like a store within a store where you're a customer of big commerce and you want to build other functionality in, they facilitate that, take a little, little cut of it? Exactly. So if you want to, if you want to offer payment uh, solutions, they partner with companies like PayPal to do that. And whenever a transaction goes through, uh, big commerce takes a small cut of that. Same thing with if you want uh, advanced analytics or you want to build in an enterprise resource planning uh, platform. You can do all that right through big commerce's portal. That, that's an attractive part of this, this platform. And they just take a, a commission based on the revenue that is generated from that. Yeah. So that allows them to be a little bit more neutral. And I would imagine that those partner and service revenues per customer grow as those customers grow. So rather than rolling people into all of their own owned and operated stuff, they're, they're kind of creating a, like almost an app store, if you will, or like a little marketplace for customers as they get bigger and their needs grow. Yeah, that's exactly right. Plus there's also, you know, that 30, that $30 subscription price, that's the starting point. Um, as a customer grows in importance and its revenue grows on the platform, they're naturally moved to higher and higher tiers over time. And that helps to the company to generate more and more revenue from its customers over time too. Gotcha. Um, I, I think one of the more curious things looking at this company, Brian, and the financials in particular, was what we got with the balance sheet. <laughs> so we were talking about some some sources of revenue there and some growth figures and you know, 17%, 38%. Um, Interesting. Uh, we always want to look at the health of the business in addition to the growth of the business. And we didn't get a lot of information in this S1. Yeah. Well, and what we got wasn't exactly the best that we've ever seen, Dylan, right? So as of uh, March 31st, Big Commerce reported that it's, it had about $33 million in cash on its balance sheet. Now, that's the asset side. On the liability side, we saw $72 million in long-term debt and $225 million in convertible stock. So that's a whole lot of liabilities and not much cash. Now, that hasn't precluded the company from doing well. And as we said from the revenue numbers, it is sticky revenue and it has grown significantly over the years. And as of the first quarter of 2020, uh, a metric that we track for SaaS companies is annual revenue run rate. So it's basically what is your revenue that quarter and then annualize it. And that number was up to 137 million, which isn't inconsequential. 
One other thing that I like about this business that actually makes it look better than Shopify is because of its slightly differentiated model than Shopify, this company has really attractive gross margins. As of the most recent quarter, its gross margin came in at 77.5%. And for comparison, Shopify's gross margin last quarter was 54.7%. So that's a pretty significant delta. It's a big delta, and it's on a dramatically smaller amount of revenue. You know, you would think that a company Shopify's size would be a little bit more competitive there just because of the scale that they operate on. On the flip side, in Shopify's defense, they are investing hugely into their fulfillment network, which is going to be much lower margin. Um, So you can't knock Shopify completely there. But yes, like you, I was also pleasantly surprised to see that this company's gross margin was already that high, even though it's way smaller than Shopify. Um, Brian, you, you uh, talked a little bit about it before, but I think anytime we talk about a SaaS company, software as a service company, we have to talk moats, we have to talk about switching costs and, and take a look at that because one of the reasons that this is so attractive as a business model to us is it's, it's really hard to get out of one of these customer relationships once you're in them. This is one of those businesses that benefits from that. Yeah. Companies like this that are, that are literally like the central nervous system behind a company's e-commerce presence... Once you're in, you're in, and you're typically in for a long period of time. So just like Shopify, big commerce benefits, I think, hugely from high switching costs. Once you navigate your entire e-commerce platform to this system and you have all these integrations uh, with, different, uh, with different companies, it's painful for the company to all of a sudden pull that out and switch at one time. So I would say that this company has a moat from high switching costs as well as there's also something to be said for its partnership ecosystem. As, as we mentioned before, it doesn't compete um, with its partners. It actually is a provider of revenue for them, and they have 600 integrations built in. That, to me, is also something that not only makes this an attractive uh, place for customers to go to, but once they're in, they tend to be in. So that's attractive. Yeah, I think it's also attractive just the the pure space that they play in. You know, this <laughs> we talked about the insane growth that Shopify shares have enjoyed over the last couple of years. Um, that's because there's a really, really heavy tailwind pushing that company forward. Uh, if you aren't online right now, I I don't know how you're operating as a business. And um, anyone that wasn't pre-COVID, I think, is scrambling to do so. Yeah, and there is. To your point, obviously, COVID has accelerated that hugely, but there's still plenty of of commerce that currently does not happen online. Uh, The company points out that in 2017, uh, admittedly three years ago, about 10% of global retail sales were online, and that number is expected to jump to 21% by 2023. That's a massive number. I mean, it seems like a small percentage, but when you actually dial back and look at the actual retail sales, the global retail sales, that is a huge amount of money that's going to be flowing online. So that is a huge tailwind for companies like Shopify and big commerce to ride. Yeah. And even if you focus in just the United States, Brian, we tend to really overestimate the penetration of e-commerce. I think as a percentage of overall US retail, it's sub 20%, even even now. Um, so, you know, th- there's still a lot of sales that are going to come online. This benefits this company, it obviously benefits Shopify as well. And for the most part, especially smaller businesses, they don't want to build this stuff out themselves. Right. And I always like to look at companies like this and say, so what is, what is the potential of this business? I, I normally like to see the company calculate a total addressable market opportunity for you. 
I didn't find any uh, in the S1. They just called out that they basically want to attract new customers, convince their existing customers to spend more, and expand internationally. Uh, but if you look at Shopify, for example, Shopify is willing to put a number on it. And they said that they believe that their total addressable market for small and medium-sized businesses is about $78 billion globally. That's just a huge number. And again, Big Commerce's um, annual revenue run rate in Q1 was 137 million. So very, very, it's captured a very, very small part of the potential pie. Yeah, early in the growth ramp there. And and before you mentioned that they started out really kind of focusing on small businesses, moved to mid-market, and now there's a little bit more of an enterprise business going on for them as well. Um, in the S1, we see them break up their customers into two main groups to kind of categorize. Yes. So um, they basically say we have two different groups of customers, those that spend less than $2,000 with us annually, and those that spend more than $2,000 with us annually. So as we said at the top of the show, they have 60,000 total customers. Only about 9,000 of them spend more than 2000 with the company annually. However, those that do account for 79% of the total pie here. So the company is more concentrated than you would think. But that's okay to me because mid-sized businesses and enterprise businesses are typically much more lucrative customers. Their businesses tend to be much more stable. You can grow with them uh, much faster. And they don't tend to go out of business nearly at the same rate as small businesses uh, do. And they actually called out some pretty attractive numbers in their S1 related to their customers that spend more than 2000 So they said the average revenue from these customers uh, was $12,000 uh, last year. And that was up uh, almost 25% over the year ago period. That's a big That's a big jump. And Dylan, we also, one of our favorite metrics for SaaS companies is net revenue retention rate. And they basically called out that it was 108% in 2019. That indicates there is a moat here for sure. Do you think that, were you expecting that number to be higher? Um, I mean, you know, one of, we, we look at a lot of different SaaS companies and, and I see 108, I'm like, that's that's good. It doesn't really like get me super excited though. So I like that they call out that this is a retention rate. Sometimes we can hear companies talk about an expansion rate. The retention rate does include churn. So that could be why it's not as eye-catching as we hear for some other companies. So when I see that, as long as it's a true retention rate and it includes churn, that's actually a number that's pretty good in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I guess I guess that's a good point. And and looking at the customer side of that stuff, Brian, I mean there are, there are a lot of different ways you can spin that customer data, you know, with uh just under 9,000 spending more than $2,000. That means, you know, 50,000 plus of their customers are spending less than $2,000. Um, if you wanted to paint a nice picture, you could say, well, they're going to wind up growing with a lot of those businesses and that ratio should shift over time. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the revenue is highly consolidated amongst that, uh, what is it, about 9,000 or so customers? Yeah, it, cer it certainly is. And yeah, the hope is that those other 51,000 businesses do grow in time to be to graduate to that above that $2,000 level. And Dylan, one thing that I liked about this company did is they specifically in their S1 called out a ratio that we look for that can be sometimes hard to find, which is what's the lifetime value of a customer divided by the cost to acquire uh, that customer. That's an important metric, but it tells you how much is a company spending to acquire a new customer 
versus how much revenue will they get over the course of that company, that uh, customer's lifetime. And they point out that that number that they calculate was 4.4 times. So for every dollar that they spend to acquire a customer, they expect to receive $4.40 in revenue over the course of that customer's lifetime. And again, let's remember, this is also a high margin business. So typically anything over one to, uh, three to one is an attractive ratio. So pretty good number for big commerce on that front. Yeah, and, and I think that that customer spend and uh, acquisition cost analysis is particularly important in the software as a service space because any high growth SaaS business worth its salt is going to be spending a lot to bring customers in. If they're in growth mode where they are trying to build out and enjoy as much of that total addressable market as they can early because they know they got a sticky product, that's where the spend's going to go. That's where we see the spend going if we look over at their income statement. For the most part, we're seeing the largest line item for them is sales and marketing. And so if that money's being well spent, awesome, keep spending it. Also, let's let's remember who they're competing against here. The number one customer, <laughs> the number one uh, opponent is Shopify. So hard to stand out when Shopify is sucking up so much air in the room. It absolutely is. I would not personally want to be competing against them. I mean, famously, uh, Amazon decided if you can't beat them, join them. Right? They wound up uh, deciding not to go into this space because they felt like Shopify was doing such a great job. Uh, I, I hope that big commerce can at least grab some piece of that pie. Um, you know, you like to like to root for the underdog every now and then, Brian. <laughs> well, as a Shopify shareholder myself, I'm not rooting for big commerce to <laughs> succeed. So I'm happy with Shopify and continue to win. Do you think that this market's big enough for both of them? Yes, I definitely do. Uh, this, uh, to me, is not a market that is one winner take all. In fact, why why else would a big commerce have attracted 60,000 businesses if it was a winner take all? I think it could be a winner take most, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's only going to be one successful investment in the space. No, I, I agree with you. Um, I I think it's a little curious that uh, the founders le- left this company. You know, generally, I know, especially for your own scorecard, that's something that you really like to see is founder-led businesses. Uh, they tend to be uh, a little bit more aligned, a little bit more long-term oriented. Uh, do you know what the story is with the the new CEO and, and the founders leaving? Or I I don't know. I don't know the backstory there. Only to say that, yeah, um, Bellum was brought in in 2015 and he shifted the strategy. And it seems like with 80% of that revenue coming from that strategy shift, that seems to have been a positive move uh, for big commerce. So yes, the founders no longer are involved. That's not something that excites me. However, if you look at the Glassdoor ratings, uh, the management team gets pretty good marks here. So four stars out of five uh, overall and 86% of employees approve of the CEO. That's not too bad. Now, one thing we don't get with this S1, Dylan, is the percent ownership uh, for for the executives. Unfortunately, that information will be forthcoming. Um, but we did see, I did see that Brent Bellum has basically 2.7 million stock options to his name. So whatever the stock price is at times 2.7 million is likely to be a whole lot of incentive for him to want to see this thing go higher. Uh, the CTO also owns another 1.5 million stock options, and the CMO, the chief marketing officer, has 1 million to herself. So I don't know what to expect on a percentage basis, but that's at least a decent amount of skin in the game from what we've seen so far. Yeah. And and while it's not a founder leader, it is someone who's been at the company for several years. Uh, It's not like they brought in somebody uh, last year to be the one who takes them public. You know, they didn't, they didn't get the, uh, you know, executive with experience taking, you know, four companies public and, and really just brought them in to do just that. It seems like this is someone who's figured out how to grow the business well. Um, and you know, is, is probably going to be here to stay. I think the, the toughest thing for me to wrap my head around with this business is, uh, what do they do better than Shopify? 
Yes, that's and and I think there has to be an answer to that question, you know, for them to operate in this space. Right, and that's going to be a tough question to answer. Um, there's a site out there that ranks commerce companies, e-commerce companies called Builtwith, and they did call out in their S1 that they were ranked the second most used SaaS e-commerce platform. A uh, funny thing to brag about. And the number one there is, of course, Shopify. And to me, that that's the biggest risk here. Uh, it's hard to say what is the differentiator, the true differentiator here. We know that Shopify has gobs of cash. It has a wonderful founder leader, and it has been investing aggressively in itself to build out a huge number of products that are all Shopify branded. And that is resonating with customers, as you can see by the huge explosive growth in the number of customers on Shopify's platform. So the competition is the number one risk that I see here. Another one we didn't call out, we didn't at least give the numbers on is this company is still losing money. That's the reason why its balance sheet was kind of uh, upside down. Net loss last year in 2019 was $43 million. That looks to help hold steady in the first quarter. They lost $10 million and that's both net income and they're burning uh, free cash flow. So hopefully they take a chunk of that capital that they raise from the IPO and hopefully they can do so at a um, generous price and fix up their balance sheet and use that money to get them to free cash flow positive. So like you, Dylan, it's hard for me to say if I was a consumer, if I was a business owner, why would I go with big commerce when Shopify uh, exists? The two do seem to be um, parallels. Ben, if, if knowing what I know now, I don't understand why I would pick big commerce over Shopify. This is actually one of those times where I want to take advantage of our platform and say, listeners, if you are someone who has made these decisions you know, for a small business or for a medium-sized business or an enterprise business, um, and you've stacked these two software solutions against each other, I would love to get your take on this. You can always shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com, or you can tweet us at mfindustryfocus. Brian is at Brian Froldy on Twitter. I am at Wiley Lewis. We love getting these kind of boots on the ground examples of you know the customer use case, what people focus on in terms of features. And I think this is one in particular, Brian, where like neither of us have had to build an e-commerce website. So you know the, the functionality and, and what people prioritize is a little bit different depending on what you're trying to do. Yeah. Exactly. So if you if you have built a uh, website with either of these, please reach out to us and tell you what you think. And obviously, there is something here. They they, they would not have sixty thousand customers if they weren't doing something uh, different. It's just hard for me to see it uh, as an outside investor. Yeah, and we you know we'll get more information on this company, and and I'll be really curious to see what the valuation looks like because you know you could see them getting kind of carried away with how much share price appreciation Shopify has shown uh, over the last couple of years. So that'll obviously be a critical part of this too. But there are a lot of spaces where I think you could buy a basket of stocks and do quite well. It's possible that e-commerce tools might might wind up being one of them. I mean, you know, the war on cash exists. I think if you had just bought all of the video game publishers five years ago, you'd probably be. Doing doing pretty well too. Um, so this could be one of those spaces, but uh, there's certainly some questions for this company to address. Yep. And I hope this company gets a really good uh, IPO price because they have a lot of work to do to clean up their balance sheet. And again, for comparison, Shopify currently trading at 63 times sales. So this company's uh, sales uh, last year were just over a hundred million. So in theory, this could be a five or six billion dollar business if they can match Shopify's valuation. I don't think they will, given that their growth rate is so much slower, but I think their decision to go public now is brilliantly timed. 
yeah, management definitely knows what they're doing over there in terms of uh, trying to raise capital, and that'll definitely help them on the balance sheet. Um, Brian, always love doing these S1 shows with you. Thanks so much for hopping on and talking about it with me today. Great to be back again, Dylan. <laughs> Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. Like I said, if you want to give us some uh, some thoughts on the e-commerce space, if you have any experience building a site with any of these tools, shoot us an email, industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. You can reach us there if you have any questions or ideas for shows as well. If you want more stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. There's no buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass. Uh, For Brian Proley, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.